I don't know. Don't ask me that. Why would you ask me that? I'm a little embarrassed <laughs> to say that I've, um, that this has been my response to my wife more frequently <laughs> recently than, than she, would, she would want, or anybody really. Um, and, and I know it sounds a little suspicious to, to respond like that, but this is, is one of the, the types of questions that elicited this sort of strong reaction from me. Should we have chicken or beef for dinner? <laughs> I don't know. Why would you ask me that? Well, are you hungry now or should we wait a little bit? I don't know. Why would you ask me that? I have no answers. On average, we human beings have to make um, 35,000 decisions every day. Did you, did you know this? 35,000 decisions every day. Should I snooze or should I get up right now? Should I make coffee first or should I put bread in the toaster? Should I have just butter or should I have butter and jam? Should I use the, the knife that I use for the butter to get the jam out of the jar knowing that I'll leave some butter in the jar or should I get a new knife? Should I iron my shirt or should I just throw it in the dryer for like a minute? How many examples should I give for this sermon? Is five too many? Is five not enough? So, so roughly 35,000 decisions later, I have no answers. Please don't ask me to make any more decisions. So many choices. So many choices. And then we come to Earth Day. Whew. And there are so many articles and so many shows, so many ways that I'm personally destroying our planet, so many ways that I could make a difference for our planet, our environment, and the world around us. What should we do? And as if this were liturgy, you all say, I don't know. Why are you asking me that? This is the struggle that comes from eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the struggle of living in this real world. And you've heard the story before, right? At least you've seen the paintings of two naked people reaching for an apple and probably a snake somewhere. The, 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 the creation parable at the beginning of Genesis that, that, that tells the story of, of these first two humans, Adam and Eve. All they know is life in this garden, in this beautiful garden where all they know and all they see and all they experience is goodness and flourishing. That's it. But then they have a meal together that includes this fruit. Oftentimes we think of it as an apple, apple but it's the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and so their eyes are opened, and now they see our world as we see it, as we experience it today. A world of contrast between good and evil, a world of choices that have consequences. Now, we, we, uh, we've often read this story um, as the moment when everything goes from good to bad. But that's not entirely true. In fact, for, for many Jewish and Christian um, theologians, rabbis, pastors over the centuries, they also see in this story sort of like a, like a coming-of-age moment for humanity. Maybe a moment when our faith story grows up a little bit and becomes a real-world faith, like a faith that actually is, is helpful for living in this world. 
We leave the sheltered world of the garden behind or the sheltered world of our childhood behind. And what do we discover? Well, what do we discover in any of the coming-of-age movies or stories? That the world is scary? That the world is, is more dangerous than we knew? Yeah, for sure. But we also discover that the world is bigger and more diverse and more beautiful than we could have imagined. That's how the stories go, right? In the Lord of the Rings stories, Bilbo Baggins or, or Frodo, they leave the Shire. The Shire is perfectly safe and everybody is perfectly happy and the most difficult decisions they have to make is what to eat for second breakfast or what to eat for elevensies or any of the other seven meals that hobbits eat in one single day. So they leave the Shire and what do they discover? That the world is scarier and more dangerous than they realized? Absolutely. But they also meet new people and they discover a new world. They discover that the world is bigger and more beautiful and more diverse than they could have imagined. And so naturally, when this happens or when we see that the world is, more, is scarier and more dangerous than we would like, there are those moments, probably for all of us, when we wish we could just go back. We wish we could unsee whatever it is that we've seen. So as soon as these two humans gain knowledge of good and evil, God comes looking for them in the garden, and what are they doing? They're hiding, right? Of course. I mean, obviously. Like, if the world is scary, like, hide. Hiding not necessarily because now everything is bad, as, as we're often taught, but because now they realize that, that what is good can be harmed, that that what is good can be lost, that, that, that their good bodies can be, can be judged or criticized by the other, that these good bodies can experience pain, that they can be wounded, that they can be rejected in this new world that their eyes are now open to. And, and it's terrifying. It, it is terrifying, right? And, and so we hide. We hide from one another. We hide from God. Can you remember... Any of those moments, perhaps, sort of those coming-of-age moments for yourself when, when you realized that the world was more dangerous and scary than you knew? This last week, our, our daughter came home telling us about uh, these before and after pictures that she saw at school of the beautiful, colorful coral in the ocean that is now bleached white from the increasing acidity of our oceans caused by our addiction to fossil fuel. That's sort of one of those coming-of-age moments when you're like, Wow, why is, is the world both so beautiful and, and so dangerous? You, you probably all know or have heard of Greta, um, Swede, Greta, Greta Thunberg. Um, and she says that one of her coming of, of age moments was, was in school when, they, when she was learning also about climate change. But, but as she was listening to all of this, she was confused and, and skeptical. Not skeptical because anybody in Sweden was denying the science like we tend to do here in the United States, but because she just couldn't believe that what she was hearing was true. Like, it, it just didn't make sense. Because if it were true, then this was the greatest crisis facing humanity ever. But no one was treating it like it was a crisis. It was like somebody calmly saying to you, your house that you are currently in is on fire, but everyone is sitting around watching TV or doing chores or getting ready for bed, but the house is on fire. 
And you start thinking, wait, if the house is on fire but nobody's panicking, then, then maybe the house isn't on fire. And so she had to do her own research because it just didn't make sense. And so she, she says that adults would often ask her, she's just, she's young. I mean, I'm not sure how old she is now, but, but adults would often ask her, what are you interested in? And she would say, the climate, because there's a crisis. And they would say, oh, that's fun. Yeah. And she's like, you obviously don't get it. This is not fun. There's a crisis happening. I mean, with trillion-dollar corporations and the most powerful governments or politicians in the world actively, strategically fighting against any meaningful changes in the world, this is a crisis and it can feel hopeless. We might as well hide. We might as well pretend. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that perhaps we should just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Um, that's not the end. Uh, so I wanted us to return to the story that Peter told today and, and that we actually looked at last week on Easter, the, the story just after Jesus' Jesus' death. Um, and we, we might remember that it, it too is a story about a couple who have a meal and then their eyes are opened. So let's listen again, um, Luke 24. You know, with Peter telling the story to the kids, you know, like, if you read, read any kids' books, it's like constant repetition, right? And I guarantee you that we, had, as adults, need constant repetition. So this is the third reading of, of Luke 4, or telling of the story. And now, now, at that same day, some of, two of Jesus' followers, and, and presumably, this is a, somebody named Cleopas with his wife, Mary, who were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other as you walk along? And they stood still and they looked sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place? in these days. Jesus said, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, who was a prophet, indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and our, our leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that the world would change. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. And moreover, some women in our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and told us that they had seen a vision of an angel who had said that he was alive. Okay, now before we get to the meal, can we hear uh, some of the echoes of that creation parable in Genesis? Adam and Eve are leaving a garden where all they knew was goodness and beauty. But this couple, Cleopas and Mary, are leaving a city where in the last three days all that they knew was darkness and evil. It's sort of like a, a mirror image in these two stories. The first couple is hiding from the crisis, while the second couple is running away from the crisis with a sense of deep sadness and hopelessness. 
But what else are they to do? The religious and political elite are actively using their wealth and their power to resist change, and it seems like they're winning. Jesus was crucified. So they invite this stranger to eat and drink with them. Perhaps be merry because tomorrow we die. And then verse 30, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, he broke it, he blessed it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. And at that very moment, they got up and they ran back to Jerusalem. They ran back toward the crisis, into the crisis with a renewed sense that death has not defeated life that the darkness has not cast out the light, that there is still hope in spite of the fact that they felt so much hopelessness. That Jesus' love for all of creation, John 3.16 tells us that it's God's love for the cosmos, that that love cannot be defeated by the great Roman Empire that that love cannot be defeated by ExxonMobil, that that love cannot be defeated by the U.S. government or any other government. And more importantly, Jesus' presence and love for us can move us beyond some of the paralysis that we feel sometimes and some of the indifference that is sort of like a coping mechanism in this world. Next week, we, we take communion. We gather around a table to eat a meal together like we do on the first Sunday of every month. We gather at this table to eat a meal that is meant to open our eyes so that we can see our world as it is. We see God's self-giving love, and we see a world that would crucify God for its own gain. We see death symbolized in the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the wine, but that same bread and that same wine is food that nourishes us and sustains us for life, for life in this world, this world of good and evil and everything in between. Today, as I mentioned following the service, we'll hear from somebody who works with Heal the Bay, which I'm sure will open our eyes to both the, the crisis and hope. We will then go down to the beach where we will see both trash and the mesmerizing beauty of the ocean's breaking waves. Our eyes will be open and we will see. There are like 35,000 things that we could do today to make a difference in this crisis, in this climate crisis. So, so we have a choice. We could let Greta Thunberg do all 35,000 of them, which she probably could do, uh, but, but it probably would be better if 35,000 of us did just one thing. Each of us, oh, we're human, we're human beings, and, and we can't do it all. We can't answer all the questions, we can't solve all of the problems. We certainly can't do it alone. But as we're reminded here, we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We're a part of something larger than ourselves in this world where our collective choices, collective choices can make a huge difference. So may our eyes be open. 
so that we can see our world as it is. And may our faith be a real world faith that can change our world. Please pray with me. Jesus, thank you for your closeness and your constant presence with us, giving us hope, nourishing us and feeding us to live in this world that, that you love so much. We pray your blessing upon the cosmos, upon this world. We pray for the healing of our world in so many ways. And we pray that you show us ways for us to be a part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.